Our scripture reading today is from James 5, 13 to 20. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will, rise him, will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Go ahead and have a seat. Thanks so much, Susan. Well, good morning. Uh, welcome to the Brookside Campus of Christ Community. We're really glad that you are with us this morning to uh, worship and gather together to encourage one another, uh, to express what we all have in common of our faith in Jesus, and to be encouraged by the Word of God. And that's what we're going to do right now. I have the joy of leading us now in a time of, of teaching where we impact God's Word and, uh, and be encouraged and challenged and convicted uh, by that Word. Um, and I, just, I believe that God has a very uh, specific Word for our church this morning. Uh, for Christ Community in Kansas City uh, in the Brookside area in 2021. Uh, I believe that God has a word for us through the passage that we're looking at in James. So would you join me before we get there in just praying and asking for him to be with us uh, during this time? Let's pray. Father, I come before you this morning personally um, humbled, uh, humbled by the ways that I have not lived up to the vision that you give for us in the book of James, not only of the holy life, but um, of being the church. So I confess that to you, and I pray that um, you would forgive me. I come before you humbled this morning because I know that apart from the power of your spirit, I am unable, I am unworthy and deserving of proclaiming your word, and so God, I just pray that you would speak um, to my heart this morning and to the hearts of those this, that are here in this room through your word, which we believe is alive and active and working in our hearts even as we hear it and, and hear it unpacked. And so God, I pray that you would be present and working and doing that this morning. And that uh, as I've been reminded, as I've been reading the book of John recently, um, that every word in scripture was ultimately meant to point us to a person, and that's the person of Jesus. So 
As we read these words and try to understand these words, God, ultimately would your spirit be pointing us to your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray and by the power of his spirit. Amen. Well, I, I don't want to begin this morning uh, by scaring you or discouraging you, uh, but, well, here we go. <laughs> we may only be at the beginning of a major health crisis. Now, before you, you think I'm, I'm giving you, like, more bad COVID news, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not talking about COVID. I'm not even talking about COVID light, the flu, uh, any sickness. I'm not even talking about obesity or, or really anything that we tend to think of when we think major health crisis. No, I'm talking about something completely different. But if we believe the experts, just as dangerous in its own right. Tyler Vanderweel, who is a, a professor of epidemiology uh, at, at Harvard University and the director of their Human Flourishing program, uh, he, uh, along with his associate director, Brendan Case, recently published an article about one of the most recent and rampant American public health crises in our country. And the problem they identify might surprise you. Look at what they say. They say, Americans' growing disaffection with organized religion isn't just bad news for churches, it also represents a public health crisis, one that has been largely ignored, but the effects of which are likely to increase in the coming years. Americans growing disaffection with organized religion. Now, now before you're, you're like, hey, okay, I came to church this morning, now a pastor is going to tell me that I should go to church more, um, remember, these aren't pastors, these aren't theologians, uh, these are Harvard researchers. And their article notes that, that the continuing decline in, in church attendance in our country that we've been witnessing, they, they note that, and then they point to a, a sizable body of research that shows how participation in a faith community strongly promotes health and wellness. That's what, that's what they unpack in this article. And here's how they conclude. They say something about the communal religious experience seems to matter. Something powerful takes place there. Something that enhances well-being. And it is something very different than what comes from solitary spirituality. And here's how they end. This line is, packs a punch. The data are clear. Going to church remains central for human flourishing. Going to church remains central for human flourishing. Now, to stop and observe, like, what happened in your gut when you heard that sentence? Like, some of you, I bet, were, were maybe just intrigued, like, huh, I want to learn more about that. I'm sure some of you were, like, disgusted. Others of you were excited, like, finally, somebody is telling people to go to church. Uh, you might have responded a lot of different ways. Uh, we, we respond to statements like that based off of our own experiences, and those are authentic, valid experiences, however, however you responded to that sentence. But the idea that, that growing, going to church remains central to human flourishing, while, while it might be surprising coming from two Harvard researchers, it really isn't a new idea. This morning, we're, we're finishing up a, a series that we've been in over the past several weeks in the book of James, and it's a series that we're calling Real Faith. And uh, the, the book of James was a book that was written by James, who was Jesus's brother. Uh, so if any of you are like that sibling who always felt overshadowed by one of your other siblings, here's a guy who gets it, okay? This guy knows what you feel, and uh, he's, I mean, he he's probably actually gets it to another degree. He's like, imagine trying to worship this person, right? Like, what? 
But his main concern in this letter is about what real, genuine, authentic faith looks like. And so he, he makes the case throughout the letter that there's a, a kind of faith that is real, that's, that's genuine, authentic, and there's a kind of faith that's not so real, or maybe what he would call empty. There are these two different kinds of faith, and he's talking about real faith. And this morning, we're, we're getting to the very end of the letter, the last uh, seven verses that he wrote, the thing that, that James has been building to this whole time. And for some of us, when you heard Susan read those words a few minutes ago, you were probably like, what? That's how he ended? Like, it kind of feels like an odd way to end a letter, a little out of place or even abrupt. Like, when I was reading it this week, I, I immediately thought of Monty Python on the Holy Grail, the castle of Arg, right? Where, like, he's riding in. It's like, oh, like, did James die at the end of this and he just didn't have anything more to say? This is such a weird way to end. But for reasons that we'll see soon, I think this is exactly where and how James wanted to land this letter. And it has everything to do with church. In fact, if you were with us this morning, I think James would want, us, want to remind us of this reality, that the call to real faith has always been the call to real community. The call to real faith has always been the call to real community. Now, this idea means a couple of things. First, it agrees with the Harvard researchers. In fact, nowhere in the New Testament, anywhere, do you get the idea or impression of an individual Christian who's disconnected from a church family. It just isn't there. As much as, as the gospel writers and the New Testament writers would affirm that everyone has a personal relationship with Jesus, they would equally affirm the relationship of Jesus with the people of God. And there just, it just wasn't in anyone's mind the idea of, of a faith that could be lived alone. Our faith was never meant to be lived alone. So the call to real faith has always been the call to real community. But there's something else behind this idea too. Because as much as I think James and, and this idea would, would agree with Harvard researchers, his words here at the end of chapter five also reveal an even deeper issue at play in our nation than simply attending church. In fact, for a long time, I've thought that this is kind of running like right alongside the dip in church attendance is this other issue, and it's this. Many Christians have lost sight of some of the most basic foundational elements of what it actually means to be the church. Many Christians, including myself at times, have lost sight of some of the most basic foundational elements of what it means to be the church. And I don't think it's an exaggeration to suggest that James would say, just like you can have this real faith and it's not so real faith, that you can have real faith communities and not so real faith communities. You can have communities that, that, that are genuinely practicing the way of Jesus together and communities that aren't. So what does it look like to have the real kind of faith community? Well, in these final verses of chapter five, if you haven't already, I invite you to open uh, your Bible to, to come follow along. I'm actually gonna be teaching from the, the NIV and you have ESVs in front of you and so the words will be on the screen too if it's easier to follow along that way. But I invite you to join me at the end of chapter five and in these verses, James casts a really compelling vision, I think, of what a real faith community looks like. And here's the first and most important marker for James. I'm just gonna give it to you right off the bat. Real faith communities pray over each other expectantly. Real faith communities pray over each other expectantly. If you haven't already, join me in verse 13. Let's look at how he starts. He says, is anyone among you in trouble? 
let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Now what he's saying here at the start is is in line with much of what he said throughout the rest of the letter so far, that prayer should be our natural response to everything that happens in our lives. In fact, the phrase, let them pray, where it's like, let let them pray, let them sing songs of praise, that that phrase, let them, uh, in in the Greek is actually a third-person imperative verb, and we don't have anything like it in the English language. Uh, The closest thing that we can come is the idea of of they should or they must. So so it's not like there are these police who are keeping people in trouble from praying, and James is like, oh, come on, just let them pray. No, the idea is like they should pray. They must pray. In other words, the more genuine your faith, the more naturally you will respond to all circumstances with prayer. With prayer for God's help when you are in trouble or suffering. With prayer of celebration when you're happy or good things happen to you. It even says singing songs of celebration. And everything in between. Now mostly for James, this idea is review, and he's really trying to get to uh, this next part and land in verse 14. So he asks another question here. He says, is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. So his third question goes something like this. Maybe you've been here before. What do you do when a major health crisis hits? What do you do when you're sick? What do you do when you get that call from the doctor that you least expected, when you are bedridden, when life simply doesn't go as planned, what do you do? And for James, the answer is simple. You reach out to your church family. You reach out to your church family. For James, the first response is to ask for help, to get other members of your faith community involved. Elders specifically are mentioned here, uh, but as you read, the, this, the rest of this passage is clear that the whole church is, and other members in the congregation are in mind for James as well. And why do you call all of these people to you? Why do you ask for their help? What do you want them to do for you? He says, so that they can pray over you. So they can pray over you. He also mentions here the practice of, of anointing others with oil, and depending on your, your faith background, that might uh, seem a little bit foreign to you, but it's actually something that many of our pastors have done before and, and would love to do with you if you would like one of us to anoint you with oil. But the point of this kind of practice is more symbolic than anything. There's nothing magic in the substance of oil itself. Uh, in fact, traditionally in Judaism and in the, in the history of the church, it's primarily uh, a, a way of invoking God's presence, of reminding us of God's presence, of, of setting someone apart uh, for God in that way. Um, and it would have meant a lot for the Jewish Christians James wrote to. That's why he mentions it in here. But it clearly was not the most important focus for James. No, most important for James is the actual act of praying for each other. Look at verse 15. He returns to that idea right away. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. So already, James is making it abundantly clear. Prayer isn't a last resort. It's not like our final line of defense or, or even just like a wishful thinking kind of thing, like I'm gonna pray and like maybe something will happen, I'm just gonna throw it up there, but, but really I've, I've gotta do all these other things. No, for James, prayer is the primary weapon of the faith community against sickness. 
And he says it has the power to heal the sick person and make them well. Now, it's important that we understand here, James is not putting prayer and health care at odds. Like, this isn't a diatribe against doctors and, and physical care physicians or any kind of framework that says, like, don't do anything, just let God do it. That's not what he's saying. But he is saying, like, no, prayer has the power to heal the sick. We also need to make sure, I think, that we're on the same page with with what James means with the phrase, the prayer of faith, or the prayer that's offered in faith, and saying that that kind of prayer will make people well. I think we need to get on the same page with that, because it has been misunderstood, and I think used in really harmful ways in the history of the church. Because James, what he's not suggesting here, is any kind of line of thinking that goes like this. If you aren't being healed, you aren't praying hard enough. Or if it doesn't seem like your prayers are being answered, you just aren't praying with enough faith or trust in God. And once you get that level of faith and trust in God, then God's going to do something about what you're praying for. It's nothing like that. In my view, that idea is simplistic, it's unbiblical, and it's sometimes used outright abusively in the church. So if you have have been told that before by well-meaning people, can I just say sorry? Don't let that define your idea of what it means to expect God in prayer. James isn't offering a formula like like prayer plus enough faith equals answered prayers. That's not what he's doing. As if that's how it should always work every time, no matter what. But at the same time, he's saying expect God to heal. So what's what's going on here? I think Craig Blomberg, uh, a scholar from Denver Seminary in the New Testament, is really helpful in grappling with this mystery of the relationship between prayer and healing. Because as you, even you hear sentences like that read, probably a lot of us are feeling like weird inside, like, oh, I don't know about that, or what about this situation? I think his words here are really helpful. Here's what he says. He says, somewhere in our prayers, we must find a balance between never expecting God to heal and requiring him to heal on demand. Some kind of a balance between never expecting God to heal and requiring him to heal on demand. Many of us have probably been at some of those different extremes at different points in our life. I think that's really, really important. James goes on to to drive this point home and clarify it a bit in verse 16, and he he adds to sickness and suffering uh, the problem, excuse me, of sin. Here's what he says. He says, if they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other Why? So that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. So there you have it, like right out, as clear as he can make it. James, if you've been with us and have read this book, he's not one to just sugarcoat things. He's just going to tell you like it is. And he says, no matter what you face, good or bad, if you're suffering or if you're sick or if you're battling the, the cancerous effects of sin, what should the people of God do? Ask each other for help and pray for each other. That's what he says. Because prayer, he says, is powerful and prayer is effective. What James is envisioning here is a church where people come around each other when they are in need and pray over each other with expectancy. With expectancy that that God will hear. With with expectancy that that God will, will act with expectancy that God will heal, with expectancy that their prayers matter and actually make a difference, with expectancy that God's power will be unleashed through their prayers. That's the kind of church 
that James is envisioning. And he gives them an example from the Old Testament to encourage them in this vision in verse 17 with a man named Elijah who was a prophet. You've probably heard some stories uh, about Elijah from the Old Testament, but here's what he says about Elijah, verse 17. He says, Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. And again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. Now, why did, why did James use the example of Elijah? Well, I don't think it's, it's because he's some superhuman Old Testament hero who we should, like, put up on the pedestal. That's not what he's doing here. It's actually exactly the opposite. No, what he goes out of his way to emphasize is the humanness of Elijah. He says he's just like us, an ordinary person, and he prayed, importantly, not, not for himself, but for the community of Israel. He prayed, and God acted. And in the same way, James says, there's something unique that happens when ordinary humans pray for each other that mobilizes God to act. There's something unique that happens when ordinary humans pray for each other that mobilizes God to act. And I want to notice, us to notice something else here, too. Notice how James is emphasizing the need not just to pray for one another, but to pray over one another. For James, there's something significant that happens when faith communities don't just like pray for one another in their, their prayer closet or prayer sunroom or whatever you have where your personal place of prayer is, but like actually gather and pray over one another. Something significant that happens. I've experienced this a number of times in my life. Many of you know that, that every year, my, my wife and by, my wife Ashton and I for a long time have been involved in a camp ministry called Northern Pines, uh, and we go up there every summer, and it's one of our favorite things we do. We direct the senior high program, and uh, this year we were just so happy to be back because it got canceled in 2020, uh, and we were also so happy because we brought up a number of our students from Brookside uh, to, to join us up there, and so we were really excited to be there. And I went into to Wednesday night of, of the first week of camp, and, and I just went into that night with, with a real sense of expectancy. Like, I just had this sense that God had laid on my spirit of, that, that he just wanted to reveal himself tangibly to someone in the room that night. I didn't know who it was. I didn't know what that meant or what that looked like. I just had a sense that God wanted to show his heart to someone in the room, to, to wrap them in, in his embrace. But the thing is, out of everyone there, the last person I expected that person to be was me. Many of you also know that my wife Ashton and I have been struggling for the past three years to conceive. And as happy as we were to be back at camp, it was also really hard for us. We were in a hard place. We, we really felt like we were starting to get super discouraged and, and slowly losing hope that God would, would ever give us the deepest desire of our heart. But then Wednesday night, in the middle of worship, we typically create some space for students or leaders to come up and share words of encouragement during worship. And in the middle of worship, uh, a, a young woman who knew our pain came up on the stage. Ashton and I were part of the band leading worship, and she, she came up on the stage. She said, I don't know why I'm doing this, except that I just feel like I would be disobeying God if I didn't respond to this urge 
that, that all of us should take a moment to pray for Taylor and Ashton. And what happened next, let me just show you what happened next. 70 teenagers physically enclosed the stage and extended hands and laid them on us and extended them towards us and took time to just pray over us in our pain. And if you can't see my face there, it's because I freaking lost it. Like, I wept like I hadn't in years because of the the love of God that was poured out through these people over us in prayer. And as they finished praying for us, I heard the bridge of the previous song that we had just sung start rising as they sang it over and over again. And 70 young voices cried out on my behalf the very words that I didn't feel like I could sing, you will make a way. And they sang it over me over and over and over again and continued to pray over us and sing over us. And can I tell you what happened in that moment? The Holy Spirit powerfully regenerated our hope. He powerfully regenerated our hope. Now, did we get pregnant that month? No, we didn't. But do I believe that God began healing our hearts and our bodies in that very moment? Absolutely. We were strengthened. We were encouraged. Our hope was renewed. Friends, that is the power that is unleashed when we pray over other people. Now let me be clear. Private intercession, when we pray alone for others, that's great, that's important. James is encouraging that too, okay? But there's something that we cannot miss that's especially significant about the prayer of a gathered community spoken over one of its members. And if you want to grow in this vision of the prayer-filled community, if that's something that you feel like God's been laying on your heart, I'd suggest just a really simple habit that I'm trying to get better at and work more into my life and build more into my rhythms um, that, that's, that's really helping me kind of think more in this framework, and that's this. When you're with someone and you feel like your natural response in that moment would be, I will be praying for you, instead of saying, I will be praying for you, say, can I pray for you? Just, just ask the question, can I pray for you? And then voice a prayer over them in that moment. It, might, it doesn't need to be long. It doesn't need to be super thorough. But just voice a prayer over them. This is a, it's a small change. It's a subtle change. It takes time to get into that habit. And by all means, write it down and go pray for them later. My goodness. But, but pray, take a moment to pray for them in that moment. Because I've found and I've heard from others that hardly ever, even if people aren't religious at all, hardly ever will someone say no to that question. In fact, I was just talking to one of my friends who's a missionary, and he was in downtown New York City doing a street show and, and asked a guy who was pretty anti-Christianity if, if he could pray over him, and he was like, yeah, sure. And then after he finished praying with him, the guy like got really, really emotional, was just like, I have to go, and just left. Not only will people usually not say no, it usually will mean more to them than you know. So in your friendships, in your community groups, in your Bible studies, when you you talk to people on Sunday morning or when you get together with people for coffee, are you willing to let people pray over you? Not just for your great aunt's best friend's cousin's mom, but like for what's going on in your heart. 
Are you willing to let people pray over you? And are you taking the time to pray over one another, expecting God to listen, to act, to heal? Is that what your faith friendships look like? Real faith communities pray over one another expectantly. Here's the second mark of this kind of church that James brings to light here in these verses. It's that real faith communities confess to each other vulnerably. They confess to each other vulnerably. Go back to to verse 16. We already read it. Um, I think it's important to read it again. Here's what he says. He says, therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Confess your sins to each other. He finishes the book on a similar note in, in verses 19 through 20. He says, my brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover a multitude of sins. I think another reason that, 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 we, that call to real faith has always been a call to real community is that we need, we were wired for intimate relationships where we can be our real, authentic selves with one another. Every single one of us in this room needs a place where we can share our stories truly and honestly and fully, where the things that, that we keep most hidden about ourselves, that sin and shame that plagues us, can be brought into the light in a healing and restorative way. We all need spiritual friendships that, that can hold us accountable when we're in error, who can restore us and remind us of who we are as a people. I need that reminder often because I often forget, and so do all of us. We need people who can pray for us when we're struggling with destructive sin habits. And James captures the entire ethos of that kind of a community with this practice of confession. He urges us to freely confess our sin to one another. Why is that important? Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, just makes it clear why confession is so important by describing the picture of sin. Here's what he says in his book, Life Together. Sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him. Have you experienced that before? Sin wants to remain unknown. It shuns the light. And in the darkness of the unexpressed, it poisons the whole being of the person. What Bonhoeffer is getting at is the necessity of confessing to others because it brings our sin into the light. Otherwise, it stays in darkness, which, friends, is sin's favorite place to be. Like, that's the place it's checked in the most times on Foursquare. Does anyone still use Foursquare? Just Satan and his demons? Okay, that makes sense. That's his favorite place to be, in the darkness. And there, in the quiet, it can destroy our soul and disrupt our community. But at the same time, James assures us that it is actually the very act of confessing and the very prayer of those who hear it for the thing that we are confessing that God uses. He uses that to bring healing and set us free from the bondage of sin. Here's how Pastor John Mark Comer, in his excellent, excellent new book, Live No Lies, comments on this passage. He says, we find our deepest intimacies and our greatest vulnerabilities. 
Jesus' brother James commanded us to confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Then notice, he says, to each other. Not just to God, as important as that is. To each other. Then he says this, a raw power and genuine freedom come when you name your sin in the presence of loving community. Just the act of naming your sin out loud to people you know and trust has the power to break chains. When was the last time you confessed your sins to someone? We don't do that often, do we? I know I don't. And there's a reason for that. It's because confession is a really hard practice. Like, no one gets excited about sharing their newest mistake. Like, man, I cannot wait to get to small group tonight so they can hear what I did this week. Like, no one feels that way. No one gets excited about telling someone the reason they carry so much shame beneath the surface. Because it takes time. It takes trust. It takes vulnerability, the admission that, you know what, if I share this, someone could hurt me with this. But friends, when you are part of a family of believers who genuinely cares about you, who is invested in your well-being and committed to your healing and restoration, what happens when we confess can be incredibly, incredibly beautiful. There's something powerful that happens when we share our hidden sin and shame with those of other people, and those people do not walk out of the room on you. No, they continue to love you anyway. They hold your story with the honor and the reverence that it deserves. And you hear them say to you in that moment, God forgives you. Jesus loves you. His spirit is with you right now. And listen, I know, I know God won't walk out on me when I confess to him, but I can't see him doing it. I know, I know that he keeps loving me, but I don't always feel it. I know, I know that he forgives me. But you know what? I've never actually heard him say that to me. But when I experience those things from someone else, I begin to think, maybe God does love me like that. I begin to sense physically in my body, maybe Jesus is here with me in this mess. And there are few things that can break us from our shame, that can free us from our sin, that can pull us out of our wanderings like that. You know, after the students finished praying over Ashton and me at camp, something actually even more remarkably happened. We ended up all getting down on the floor and the high school group just kind of sitting in a circle. And we just left space. And slowly, students started sharing with one another. They began sharing their own sources of suffering, the sicknesses they were dealing with, the sin in their life, the shame. They confessed honestly and vulnerably to one another, some of whom they had just met that week. The things they had hidden and carried in their bodies all year, and they did it with boldness, and they did it with vulnerability. In fact, one girl said to me, this is something that I haven't shared with anyone before. I haven't even written this down in my journal. I haven't told God about it. And what happened after each person shared was that others in the room started speaking up. And someone would say, can I pray for you? And another student would pray for that student. People would rise and get up and and walk across the room to hug and embrace each other, to weep with each other. There were words of affirmation and encouragement flying around the room. 
And the rest of the week, students continued to name the healing and freedom they experienced simply by confessing to each other and being prayed over. And you know what I was thinking when I was sitting in that space the whole time? As I was just sitting there listening to this all happen? This is the church. This is what the church is supposed to be. A community that looks like this. This is what it looks like to be a community that's really, truly practicing the way of Jesus together. And I think James would agree. Do you have other Christians in your life who you're that honest with? That vulnerable with? Who you confess your most hidden things to? If I'm honest, I don't. I need more of that personally. But imagine what beautiful things God could do in our church if this was true about our community. Now I'm gonna state the obvious here because I think it's worth saying this explicitly. Everything we've talked about with confession of prayer assumes that we are close enough to others and let others get close enough to us that they know and we know what each other needs. That we know each other's sin and shame and suffering and sickness. We know when they're wandering from truth. We know when they're happy and joyful. We know when they're in trouble. It assumes that we're close enough and let others get close enough to us that we know those things. See, the vision of church that that James offers us is this community of tight-knit, interdependent relationships that rally around one another when they are in need and cover one another in prayer and boldly expect God to bring healing and redemption. And I think if we were gonna sum this entire section up, we could say it like this. Real faith communities care for each other deeply. Real faith communities care for each other deeply. We could also say it like this, you know a genuine faith community by the way its members take care of one another. Before anything else, the church should be the kind of family where we care for others and are cared for by others. Real faith communities, they're not identified by how good the worship music is, how great the preaching is, how many programs they have, how much the pastors do for the people in the pews or anything like that. No, you will know the church by the way they care for each other. And honestly, the question that's just burning on my heart right now, and has been before I even thought that this was a text that I was gonna preach someday, is this question. Are you and I being that kind of church for each other? Are you and I being that kind of church for each other? One of my favorite shows of all time is a show uh, called Parks and Recreation. Some of you maybe have, have watched it. And there's an episode early on in the show. It's, it's a really funny show. I love the show. There's an episode really early on uh, where Leslie, who's the main character and protagonist, has a romantic interest in this guy named Justin. And, and Justin, he's just like this super interesting guy, like really fascinating. He has tons of stories. He's done a lot of things from all over the world. And everyone in the show seems to really like this guy. Like, I think like Tom is in, as much in love with him as Leslie is. Like the, the, he's just such an interesting guy. But eventually, Leslie realizes that she doesn't like him as much as she thought she did. And eventually, he ends up leaving kind of unexpectedly. And and Ron Swanson, who's one of her friends and co-workers, helps her see why he thinks she doesn't like him as much. Here's what he says. He's a tourist. He vacations in people's lives, takes pictures, puts them in his scrapbook, and moves on. Basically, Leslie, he's selfish, and you're not, and that's why you don't like him. 
He's a tourist. He vacations in people's lives. Are you just a tourist in the lives of those around you? Are you just a tourist in the lives of those around you? Do you just get close enough to share interesting things or gain people's acceptance and approval, get them to like you, but never close enough to truly invest in and care for them? Maybe we could also ask, are you a tourist in the church? Are you vacationing in the lives of your brothers and sisters in Christ? Hanging out but never letting anyone in? Afraid to get too deeply attached or let someone below the surface of the exterior you work so hard to keep up on Sunday mornings? Are you sitting at a distance, collecting and consuming what the church and its leaders can give you? Or are you contributing and caring for others in need? Friends, the invitation as we close the book of James is really simple. Invest in a real faith community. Invest in a real faith community. Stop being a tourist and start being an investor who actually has a stake in the lives of those around you. Invest in a real faith community. Now, I don't know what that means for you. Maybe it means being more honest with your community group, being more open about what you've been going through. Maybe it means making more space in your community group to actually pray over one another in that moment. Maybe it looks like joining a community group for the the very first time. Maybe you've been around for several years and haven't ever done that. Maybe community like that is what you need. Maybe it looks like finding two or three other guys in the church to have weekly coffee with, or two or three other girls to have weekly coffee with where you confess to each other and hold each other accountable. Maybe it means getting lunch with a pastor for help and prayer and guidance. Maybe it means stepping in to serve in meals ministry or in women's ministry or or in prayer ministry as we get that started back up soon. In fact, we're gonna make it really easy for you after the service to take those steps. If that's what God is calling you to, Pastor Bill will, will share a little bit more about that. Maybe you have a new idea of a way that you uniquely feel gifted and want to serve the church and care for one another. But whatever that is, Whatever that looks like, the call to real faith has always been a call to real community. A real community that prays, a real community that confesses, that heals, that restores, that cares. How is God calling you? How is God calling us to invest in and embody this kind of caring family? Let's pray. God, I feel how hard this is to really lean into the kind of church that you wanted to create. The church wasn't our idea, it was yours. And you have designs for it for beauty and flourishing in the world. God, I know how, how hard it can be And the number of times that I've failed at living into this vision, no church, especially not our church, is perfect at this. But God, through your power and through your grace, would you enable us to lean more fully into this idea? To become the kind of community that is caring for one another by sharing our vulnerabilities and praying for one another. God, we pray. Actually, I just take a moment to pray right now for those in this room who are wrestling with sin or who maybe have buried it so much beneath the surface they don't realize how much it's affecting them. For those who who are suffering this morning, maybe from a long, lingering period of suffering. 
For those this morning who are sick and hurting, God, would you bring healing? Would you start right now healing them, restoring them, comforting them, encouraging them, be with them, be near to them? And help us to be that for one another. God, we need your grace, we need your power, we need your spirit. We're so grateful for your son Jesus who makes our power so perfect, makes his power so perfect in our weaknesses. God, help us to be honest about what those weaknesses are and so be the kind of community that just offers such a beautiful vision of the family that we will one day eternally be a part of together. In Jesus' name, amen.